Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I'd like to start off this podcast a little differently. I'm up editing on Sunday night and something happened tonight that was so special and so wonderful and I'm so, so excited and so happy. And that's that this evening, a great friend of mine and one of the most extraordinary stand-up comedian actors of my generation, Louis Anderson, just won the Emmy Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. And I want to congratulate his manager, Amos, his guiding light, Abraham. But most importantly, I want to tell Louis Anderson how much I love you and how much I respect you and how proud I am of you. And if there's anybody out in this audience that has never really watched Louis Anderson do stand-up or watched his animated show, Life with Louis, or watched Baskets, where he gives one of the greatest performances that you'll ever see. Check him out. He's wonderful. He's a special man. And he will always have a place in my heart. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited because I have Mona Scott Young here. 
an entrepreneur, a person who is one of the biggest people in her world. And I've been trying to get her here since 1977. It's been unbelievable. Finally here. It's been since I heard beat it on the radio that, that I tried asking her to come here and she's here and I'm grateful. And I thought somebody you're trying to get for a long time comes here that they'd come here and they'd have an attitude or they'd be upset or they'd be like, fucking podcast i hate i just why did i agree to this shit but no i always say there's five things if you have five things in your life you are never going to have a problem here's my five ready cover your mouth and your nose and look in the mirror okay look at your eyes if they sparkle if they just light up that's number one the eyes are the window to the soul. Mona's eyes light up. They're warm, they're inviting, they're kind, but they're also really, really powerful. Number two, cover your eyes and your nose and look in the mirror if you can through a finger and look at your mouth and your smile. And if you have that smile that automatically the heavens open up and the light shines down and you have charisma, that's number two. Look around, everybody. Go around in the mall. Walk around wherever you are. Look and see how many people have charisma. You can count it on half a hand. But Mona Scott Young has charisma. That's number two. Number three, everybody. Put your hand right on your heart because you have heart. And you can tell when somebody has heart when they walk in a room. You can't fake heart. You either have it or you don't. And it just comes in the room and it just grabs you. And then you're like, oh. My God, this is so wonderful. Number four, everybody, point your fingers on both sides of your head where above your ears and you have your brain and your emotional intelligence and your intellectual intelligence. And if you have the emotional intelligence, which is something that you have that navigates you through life and how you deal with different emotional situations and tragedies and things like that that might happen in your life and how you process them and get them all taken care of within so you can move past them and be great. That's the emotional intelligence. And the intellectual intelligence is the ability to have the brain power to function in this world with some of the smartest people in the world, even if you didn't go to college oh. like Mona. And number five is look at yourself in a full length mirror and look at yourself and see how you put yourself together and how you go out into the world and how you show the world who you are and how you dress and how you present yourself and how you physically are and the beauty that you have not only on the outside but on the outside and how you put it together and that's number five and if you have all five of those things like mona scott young you are going to be in a situation where you're going to be able to take anything you want and win. The only way you can lose is if you're self-destructive, if you do drugs or if you're an addict or if you're drinking or if for some reason you have emotional problems or things like that. But the bottom line is, is that if you have those five things, you're going to be able to apply yourself anywhere and you're going to be able to get out of any bad situation you're in and make it a great situation. And... Secondly, if you can find your lane, if you can have a vision of where you belong in the world and what part of that world you belong in. In Mona's case, she found her lane with the love and hip hop franchise and the African-American entrepreneurs and the drama surrounding love, music and success and conflict. 
And those four things that she worked on, she looked at that and she said, you know what, that's where I'm going to be most successful. That's where I'm going to be able to make my mark. And you ride that lane as far as you can, as long as you can, until people know you and they trust you. And then you're ready to enter another lane of business, which Mona, I'm sure we'll talk about, is most certainly about to enter as well. So you see a lane that you have for television and then you think, okay, well, let me take this lane to film. Let me take this lane a different way. And then when I exhaust every cylinder in the engine of that lane, I now have all five tools with me that I can take anything and anybody will follow me to the depths of hell and chase me like my ass is on fire to work with me because I present an atmosphere that's really phenomenal. So my lesson today, if there is a lesson here in this cold open is if you see yourself as the kind of person who can put those five tools together and you have those five tools and you can find your lane let me tell you something, you'll have an excellent chance of having the kind of career that Mona Scott Young has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to IKillJFK.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to IKillJFK.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away.
All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Before I get started, I want to thank all you like I always do. I can't believe how supportive you are. It's unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a steamer trunk in the mail, FedExed. This thing weighed more than Rhode Island, okay? I open up the steamer trunk. There's milk cans like Houdini got out of. There's rocks with etchings on them. There's like T-shirts, hats. You guys are crazy wonderful, and I'm so appreciative, and I can't believe how supportive you've been. And I want to thank everyone at iTunes as well, who has just been amazing to the show. And I'm so grateful. We have some great shows coming up in the future that you're going to love, including Kevin Hart, which is a special presentation that we're going to have before his movie launches from the stadium in Philadelphia. All right. So now it's time to introduce my guest today. So get some popcorn. This is the part that you fast forward through and you hate, but I love and I'm going to go for it. Mona Scott Young is a CEO and media mogul and a successful talent manager, television producer, publisher, TV host, CEO, and founder of multimedia entertainment company, Mona Me Entertainment, home to Grammy Award-winning artist Missy Elliott, publishing imprint Mona Me Books, and VH1's most popular docu-franchise, Love and Hip Hop. She has transformed the face of television, giving African-American musicians, actors, business owners, and athletes an alternative outlet. She's broke ground with record-breaking ratings from shows like Love and Hip Hop, Chrissy and Jim, and dozens more to come. She is the executive producer of Love and Hip Hop and the highly rated spinoff Love and Hip Hop Atlanta and Love and Hip Hop Hollywood. The latest addition to the successful franchise, Scott Young has also executive produced the related series Chrissy and Mr. Jones and K. Michelle, My Life, as well as numerous reunion shows and specials for VH1, where she also served as on-camera host and narrator. Scott was born in New York and was living on her own in New York City when she was 15. Finances were her biggest priority, which explained why she decided not to attend college. Scott did a normal 9 to 5 like most, but it was a temp job she took at Radio City Music Hall that would play a pivotal role in her entering the entertainment business. She signed on for a temp job during the holidays at Radio City Music Hall, and she interacted directly with entrepreneurs and different acts who were performing. Her first transition into management came with the Trackmasters. With her success with the Trackmasters, she built her own management company, Violator, with Chris Lighty. Violator was home to artists like Q-Tip, Foxy Brown, Missy Elliott, Ja Rule, Mob Deep, 50 Cent, Busta Rhyme, Mariah Carey, and Fantasia from American Idol. Mona was a mentor and employer of Yandy Smith, and then Young had been hired to personally manage Jim Jones. Mona was in the process of creating Mona Me Film Production Company, and Jim was approached by VH1 to do a reality show, but the series creator, Jim Ackerman, who I know very well, needed a new direction for the series. And since Jim wasn't interested, and through Yandy, he contacted Mona to develop love and hip-hop and history was in the making. Five years later, the series is still on the air and has spun off three franchises plus two other spinoffs. Amazing. 
Scott Young's previous accolades include being honored with awards from the National Association of Black Female Executives in Music Entertainment, ASCAP's Women Behind the Music Award, Marketer of the Year Award by Ad Age, and she was recognized by the National Congress and Convention of Haitian Americans for her philanthropic work. Essence Magazine also named her a 21st century renaissance sister scott young's business and philanthropic achievements have garnered recognition from a variety of organizations and publications she was recognized at 2015 and 16 as the real screen global 100 the hollywood reporters reality powerless varieties reality television impact report billboards tv's top music power players and multi-channel news named her vh1's reality superstar just incredible. Scott Young was also honored at the 2015 Toast to Urban Entertainment Executives event and was named one of the top 40 industry social media influencers by 2015 Sync Blog. Incredible, Mona. Additionally, Mona Me recently announced the pickup of two new series, Money, Power, Respect from WeTV and Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, the spinoff Stevie and Jocelyn. Take L.A. Scott Young's additional credits include consulting executive producer for VH1's Amber Rose Talk Show and executive producer for VH1's Hip Hop Honors and Love and Hip Hop After Party Live. In addition to cocaine, history between the lines. This is Hot 97, The Gossip Game, and The New Atlanta. When not in the office, Scott Young is enjoying time with her family and serving on the board of Haitian Roundtable, the RSQ Foundation, and the Grassroots Community Foundation. She currently lives in New York City with her husband, daughter, and son. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited, if she's still awake, <laughs> to welcome you, Mona Scott Young. <sighs> and the crowd cheers. Was that all off the top of your head? Mm -hmm. That's bizarre and bananas and awesome and all at the same time. Thank you. It channels through me. I don't know what happens. And it was so funny because listening to it, I was like, oh, God, this is embarrassing. And then I got sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much truth in all of that. Not because, yes, I am all those things, but because, yes, I am all those things. You are. That was pretty awesome. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And I get a recording of this, right, so that I can just play that every morning. Yes, That's you can. That's how I want to start my friggin' day every morning. <laughs> Will you do that? Absolutely. Because I'm going to play some of your stuff for myself every morning, and then oh I'm going to cry afterwards and realize I don't have your life. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a whole lot over there. <laughs> I appreciate it. Been on my own since I was 15. Actually emancipated minor, figuring it out. Um, now, you were emancipated at 15. I don't know anybody who was emancipated at 15. Explain in your mind when the process started happening that, okay, I got to get out of here and I got to figure out a way to have my independence. Right. How do you start the process of that and what age do you start thinking about it? Well, actually what happened was we, you know, I was born and raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My mom was a single mother and moved around to wherever she needed to, to take care of us. And when I was about eight years old, she moved to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And we were living in St. Croix and I don't know if you've ever been, but you could pretty much do everything there is to be done in St. Croix in the first week of being there. So I was bored out of my mind, knew that there was so much more out there for me. And I would come to New York and visit my older sister who lived, you know, here in New York and always wanted to go back. And my mom was like, no, you've got to stay here. And um, I got information about how, you know, as an emancipated minor, you couldn't be held, you know, to living with your parents and family. And one day I just 
packed my stuff up, headed to the airport. I remember my mother coming to the airport. You can't go. What are you doing? And I had um, actually started looking into the process and had gotten the paperwork. And when the cops showed up, I was like, I'm declaring myself an emancipated minor. And they had to call a magistrate down and, you know, went through the whole process and was allowed to get on that plane at 15, which in retrospect was friggin' crazy. Like, you know, I mean, of course, they made contact with my sister and she confirmed that she would, you know, pick me up on the other side and I'd have a place to stay. But, you know, I think about my kids now. My son is 18 and I still consider him like a baby who can't find his way out of a paper bag. You know, but meanwhile. Well, you know why that is. Why? Because we think we're so much smarter than our kids. No, when we were kids, I'm not putting you in my age range because you're much younger than me. I'm going to fit my walker with tennis balls after this podcast. But when I was younger, basically you got up in the morning on a Saturday and you said, Ma, I'm going out to play with some friends. I'll be back for dinner. Right. And you're just gone. You're around town alone as an eight-year-old. And now you keep them so close to you. They're latchkey kids. They can't, you know. Take care of themselves. No, I I absolutely agree. But when I think about some of the things that I was doing, especially after emancipating and coming to New York City and having to get up and go to school on my own and make sure that I got through high school, and I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? You know? You were thinking the right thing. You were thinking like one of the persons who has the five tools. Ah, There you go, those five tools. First of all, how do you get the money for the plane? Well, I, I've always worked. That's the thing, whether it was odd jobs, you know, and my mother uh, in St. Croix owned like one of those, they had the cruise ships that came in and she was always selling souvenirs and she had a restaurant and bar and she had tenants and we would do odd jobs around the house and making sure that, you know, um, things were handled with the tenants collecting the rent. So she would always, that was the one thing I credit my mother for at a very early age, always instilled in us business, right? You do this, you do a good job, you get compensated for it. So I was stashing away. And back then the ticket was like 200 bucks, you know? So I stashed away for an entire summer to get that ticket. You're on the aisle with your mom. Is this just you and your mom? And my sister and my little brother. And was your sister younger than you or older? My sister is a year older than me, but I was kind of the ringleader. You know, she's a totally different personality. I'm an Aquarius. She's a Libra. She's more about making sure everything's copacetic. Everybody's happy. I'm, you know always shaking things up and trying to give my mother a heart attack. This is something that I don't know about because I grew up with a single mom too. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad passed away when I was four. I knew how my dad left the earth plane. Did you know anything about your dad or where he was or what happened? And did you ever meet your dad? I remember, I have one clear, vivid memory of my dad, right? And it's an interesting thing because I've always, I remember my dad coming over to the apartment where we lived and My mom, you know, I didn't quite understand the dynamic of who he was, right? Because it was one memory of him. And I remember him saying, eat all your food and I'll take you to get that bike that you want. It was a tricycle. And I remember, you know, this man saying this to me and apparently me eating all the food because next memory is me riding this tricycle and looking behind me and he and my mother were holding hands. And the next memory I have is me coming, being flown in from St. Croix Uh, from New York to St. Croix and my mother picking me up at the airport and it was the first flight I'd ever taken on my own because it was that whole tag that they put on you when you're, you know, minor traveling on your own. And at the counter, my mother started changing my clothes and putting on black tights and a black little tutu. And I'm like, why are you changing my clothes? And she was like, your father died. And 
at the time, there was my stepfather that was in and out of our lives and this man that one time I remember getting the red tricycle and my mother saying, that's your father. And, and I remember going like, oh, it's okay. Don't I have another one? And that was when, you know, I realized that my father, you know, who my biological father had passed away. And then going to the funeral, it's all kind of a blurry, you know, memory for me. But those are kind of the only two real recollections I have. <coughs> Sad. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always think about, you know how they say there's things that trigger in your head uh, moments in your life. I always wonder about that. Eat all your food and I'll get you a tricycle. Because food has always been something that I've had this love-hate relationship with, you know. And I, and I wonder if I ever, like, laid in an analyst couch, on an analyst couch, would they say, oh, there it is. Those are daddy issues and they're directly linked to your overeating. You know? <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask you that I didn't experience. I remember something in my life when my father died. I remember I... I heard like noises from the kitchen. I remember I was like maybe four or five and I walked around the living room to a place where I could be in a doorway and kind of peek in and see what was happening. Mm -hmm. And my mom had her back to me and it's one of those kitchens that have the sink and there's the window that overlooks the backyard and she's doing dishes. And you know when people cry and you can see mm -hmm. from the back they're crying and their, their shoulders. shoulders go up and down. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing her crying and I remember walking over to her and holding her leg and saying everything's going to be okay. You talked about daddy issues and what drives mm -hmm. you as a person. I think that moment there I became the everything's going to be okay guy. Right. And yeah. so in my Why are business, you making me emotional with that story? Wow. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm crying a little bit too, so that's yeah. okay. We're all good. We, we, <laughs> we don't have any Kleenex here. That's the bad part. Right. I believe that's what forms and shapes us for who we are. Absolutely. And so for you, I believe that drove you into a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And if that tragedy didn't happen, mm -hmm. maybe you wouldn't be exactly mm -hmm. where you are today. And I certainly know mine wouldn't have because there are many instances later on that I pulled on that story. And mm -hmm. so but what I was about to say was she never really dated anybody or went out with anybody that I knew. But I think to myself, you know, you're beautiful. Your mom was probably gorgeous living in on, the, on an island mm -hmm. where tourists come in and out. Was it hard for you to, you know, was she, was she somebody who just kept to herself or did you see her trying to find the man mm -hmm. of her dreams? Because I ask that because your show is have a lot to do with love and conflict and dysfunctional relationships. Mm -hmm. um, actually, you know what? Years later, my mother did have another relationship. That's my brother. was nine years younger than I am. And he was born, she got married to a much younger, uh, you know, to a younger man. Oh, that's interesting. Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I got married to a younger man. What's the correlation there? But um, no, my mother, you know, it's interesting because... And I think there's a lot of that in me. As much as I watch this woman, you know, do whatever she had to do for her kids, and she always had this attitude that, you know, I can do this and I'm going to make it happen, and this, nothing is impossible. She didn't shut herself off from love, and she didn't shut herself off from, you know, wanting to be in a relationship and finding someone. Unfortunately, they were never successful, you know, and, and even my 
my younger brother's father was like a friggin' nightmare. You know, I had some horrific memories growing up, and he he passed away um, and actually ended up in jail for trying to kill us all in the house. You know, he would get drunk and take the bottles and turn them into Molotov cocktails, you know, stuffing the rags in them and throw them at the house. So here my sister and I, you know, barely, however old we were, like putting out, you know, these small fires that would spark around the house. It was... It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I mean, it certainly shaped who I was, being able to um, live through all of those experiences and persevere and see my mother pick herself up time and time again. But I think to some extent, it desensitized me a little bit because my norm was warped. You know, the things that I had come to just accept as part of my life were just not the normal things that people you know, grow up experiencing. So when you talk about like what would make you think at 15 that you could become an emancipated minor, by the time I turned 15, I felt like I had lived a lifetime. You, you know? have. You have. Yeah. So, but your mom kept going back to this guy who was throwing Molotov cocktails mm. into the house. That was actually the last straw. Oh, God. He would, he would do other things. I mean, he was abusive to her, you know, not, not to us as much, but... um I, re I remember so many instances of my mother kind of like, whatever you're doing, do to me, do not mess with my kids. Whether it was him ripping the antenna down, you know, because back then living on the islands, you needed an antenna to actually transmit English television. So he'd rip the antenna off the top of the house so we couldn't, you know, watch TV or just like me, great when he was sober and like everyone just crazy and mean when he was drunk. But she never allowed it, although it was impacting us, of course, seeing this stuff happen with her. Did you ever do a lot of research on your world of the adult child of alcoholic parents, or you've never really explored it? I have this really bizarre tendency to compartmentalize. I put things in a box, like, we're going to put this in a box, we're going to bury it, we're not even going to, you know. Um, Am I well read on all of those subjects and I understand how they can subliminally, subconsciously affect you, shape you, impact you, and manifest themselves in, you know, the craziest of ways when you're not paying attention? Sure. Very aware of that. But no, I've never stopped to really think about um, what that meant for me growing up and how that, you know, probably, I think I've worked against it, but I've never really analyzed it. You know, there's some kids that grow up and their parents never tell each other that they love each yes. other. They never hold hands. There's no affection. Right. And there's certain children that carry that on to mm -hmm. the next generation. Mm -hmm. And there's certain children that make it a point that they become just the opposite of what they saw. Mm -hmm. Where do you fit in in uh, that? A complete opposite. Complete opposite. And and again, that's why I said I'm aware of it, so I'm constantly battling, you know, against it. I, you know, think about my relationships. That was a conscious decision to, you know, get into a relationship that was going to, you know, be lasting and to work at it every single day. I mean, there were tons of times where it would have been easier to say, oh, to hell with this. This is too much work. But because I didn't want to, my kids to be the product of a broken home, we put in the work to, you know make the, the, the marriage work. And it, it, listen, it's not this utopian, perfect, you know, home. And we are conscious of the things, you know, both Sean and I, of the things that we experienced growing up, not wanting our kids to, you know, be subject to those same things or 
and, and putting in the work and taking the time to have the conversations that were never had with us and to, let, to, to make sure that they're witnessing something different, even in our home. We're naturally demonstrative, very affectionate. Our daughter is 13. She's constantly going, yeah, that's disgusting. I know how I was made and I don't want to witness it. You know, she's smarter than I ever could dream of being. Funny, you know, great sense of humor. So, Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you just, you have such an amazing, amazing energy. No, oh, thank uh, you. I want to ask you another question about family. I mm -hmm. hope you don't mind. I have two boys, 11 mm -hmm. and 12, and you don't know what's going to happen. You never mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know that LeBron James's kids are going to play basketball. Right. Mm -hmm. But in my world, I don't know. And just one day they just start doing something mm -hmm. and liking something. You're like, where did that come from? That wasn't from me. And how You're talking about my daughter with the rock music? Yes. You know, <laughs> we have no idea where that came from. It's so wild. So you know I do the research. Yes, you do do your homework. <laughs> I'm impressed. At first I thought, oh, she's doing this because she, I guess to some extent, her brother, first child, really good at anything he sets his mind to, handsome kid, great dancer. And my daughter, you know, very self-assured and great sense of who she is, but very different from her brother. And I, and I thought at first it was just a means of her kind of having her own lane, you know, because he's into, of course, R&B and hip-hop music, pop music, and it's what he grew up listening to and what he grew up around. Um, but she really has a love for it. And, she's, and I'm watching her apply herself in a way that just makes me proud because I think... I never had those natural kind of abilities for music and, you know, dance I do I, that I'm very good at. I'll take all the credit for that. But like playing instruments or holding a note, people say to me all the time, you know, I know you can sing. I'm like, trust me, I cannot hold a note to save my life. So I'm so impressed by people who have that natural ability, but I'm even more impressed at, by people who work hard and develop. A talent, right? And so for my daughter to hear her, um, you know, working on the piano or the guitar and her vocals and learning the music and the songs, like to me, that says so much about who she's going to be. And that's, you know, makes me so proud. But I have no idea where that sensibility came from. Because when I tell you, my husband and I are like, okay, let's go to the show. <laughs> you know, like, no a context whatsoever. I don't know any of the songs she sings, don't know any of the music that she's excited about. That's fantastic. And I want to ask you one more emotional question. I hope oh, you don't geez. mind. No, not at all. I've known a lot of artists who have mm -hmm. been in homes where a lot of heavy shit's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you talked about with the fire and putting mm -hmm. out, I mean, doesn't get any worse than that. And you saw all this conflict in your life involving love. This is so incredible to me how it ties together because, like you said something so fantastic, you said when it was good, it was great, mm -hmm. loving, wonderful, and when it was bad, it was bad. And every show that I've seen of yours, and I've been uh, watching so much stuff, it's mm -hmm. crazy, I've been absorbing myself <laughs> and everything, the shows are essentially in my mind, mm -hmm. this is the formula for your shows, and you tell me if I'm high. Okay. In the African-American world, the drive for fame, success, recognition, respect, and power, the drive for love and happiness through reciprocal love. Mm -hmm. Not only do you love somebody with all your heart, but the hope that they love you mm -hmm. back. And thirdly, 
the conflict when you feel another person has done something to disrespect you, to dishonor you, to disarm you, to not love you as much as you deserve to be loved, and the consequences of that. Mm. To me, that's the formula mm. of your success in television. And to me, it was born out of the formula of your early life. Well, you know, it's a little bit of that, but I'll make one correction. It's not necessarily the African-American relationship story, right? It's very specifically the hip-hop culture and the music-based hip-hop culture relationship story. Um, it was a little bit, maybe you're right, based on what I experienced growing up, but it was more about what I saw and experienced being a manager for 20-plus years, right? I was out there on the road with these guys. I represented, the, you know, a ton of them at the height of their careers and saw what happened to those relationships that never fully matured, right? I know some of my old clients who were dating their girl for 15 years and never put a ring on it, never, you know, and then those relationships would come to an end and those women would have, they would have given the best years of their lives and, you know, had nothing, have nothing to show for it in a sense. And dealing with um, all of the, the things that come with everything that you give up in pursuit of love and career and, you know, that struggle, uh, what it represents for you internally, but how it impacts the relationship that you in, you're in. That's what Love and Hip Hop specifically was about. It was one, um, pulling the curtain back on the lives that these, you know, artists led and whether they be male or female, but also looking at how those relationship dynamics existed in this world that had a different set of rules. You know, there were scenes in the early episodes where you heard Chrissy talk about like, I know what it is when my man is on the road, as long as he doesn't bring it to my doorstep, I'm okay with that. Right. And this was never about passing judgment or looking at it and saying, oh, th the way they're living their lives or having these relationships, it's wrong. So you think that's representative of every woman who goes out with a hip hop person is like, I'm just going to look the other way? No, no, no. Not every woman. I would never generalize in that way. Right. And I think that's been a big part of the backlash that the show has experienced. People have tried to paint this as, you know, the definitive picture of all African-American relationships. No, it's not that at all. I'm living proof that that's not the norm. And, you know, because my relationship is very different. This is, again, not only this specific slice of the, you know, entertainment world, this hip hop culture, but also these people and their experiences specifically, right? And we've tried to tell different stories. You look at Remy and Papoose, very, very different from any of the relationships that, you know, any of my cast members in Atlanta have had. So it's really more about this culture, everything that comes with it, the fame, the, you know, the adoration, the fans. How do you navigate that world and try to maintain um, a monogamous relationship? And what do you have to give up in order to have that life? And I'm sure it's no different in rock and roll and in any other genre of music. Hip hop was just where I came from all of those years. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So when you were managing, one of the toughest parts for me throughout my management career, and especially early on in the early days, is you'd be hanging out with a client 20 years ago or whatever it is you'd be at a party and you know they had a girlfriend for mm -hmm. many years and they'd sit down next to you and they'd mm -hmm. say hey barry i went on the road last night i was in chicago this girl i mean she had my ankles in two different zip codes it was unbelievable barry it was incredible. And then the girlfriend will sit down next to me and hug me. Mm -hmm. Hey, Barry, how you doing? Isn't he the best? Isn't he the best? He is the best, isn't he? Look, I love that guy. Mm -hmm. He's the best. And you're just sitting there like you've been involved in the, a car accident and you're in the passenger seat. Yeah. And I, that always disturbed me because I had to take those things to the grave. Mm-hmm. And I still have to take them to the mm -hmm. grave long ago from clients I work with long that I don't even work with anymore. How did you handle those situations? Because I know they happen. Mm -hmm. How did you handle them? I think that ability that I talked about earlier to compartmentalize became a coping device for me, both in my personal life and in business. I have had my closest best friends work for me for like the past 20 years and my ability to separate the two. I can, you know, very clearly delineate between my relationship because a lot of times your clients become your friends, right? And sometimes you have to be the person keeping it 100 and pulling their coat. I, I'm never going to betray a trust. I'm never going to compromise what the, the way I'm supposed to operate, right? As the manager and the trusted source keeper of the information. But that didn't mean that when he and I weren't alone in having a real conversation that I didn't call him out for being a piece of crap about it, right? But I'm never going to let the, commingle the two where I'm now compromising who I am supposed to represent as their manager because I am personally involved and emotionally, you know, involved in their personal life. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if it served me well. I don't know if it's worked against me. I remember Jim Jones saying to me once, like, you're a robot. You know, and I'm like, I'm not a robot. I just have a clear ability to separate things. So when I can sit here with you and have this conversation, it is not because I don't care. It's because my feelings have no place in this conversation, you know, and it's not an easy thing to do, but I don't know. Where do your feelings have a place in a conversation? In a personal conversation, a conversation when I think that, you know, someone is, um, Doing something that is hurtful, yes, I will, you know, I think that's where. But if I am having a business conversation with someone and um, 
what I have to say doesn't further the business agenda, I'm happy to have a personal conversation with them where we can talk about it, but I, I, I don't commingle the two. It's amazing. You said something that really kind of affected me that was so profound, that a woman gives the best years of her life to these people and she has nothing to show for it. And it was really profound uh, analysis of how a woman feels about a relationship. And then I think to myself, why doesn't the guy ever say, I gave the best 15 years of my life and I have nothing to show for it? How come the guy never says that? I think we're wired very differently, right? I think we want different things out of relationships. I mean, I don't, again, hate generalizations and lumping people into buckets. But um, I think if we look at the majority of relationships, you know, that don't work out, um, I think we're probably finding, again, I don't know what the statistics are, but a lot of it is because the woman wanted more out of the relationship. And and especially when you look at something that ran for 15 years, usually it's the guy turning around and saying, she's, you know, not what I have in mind anymore, too old, whatever the case is, and turning to someone else for the things that they feel they're no longer getting in the relationship, but not willing to put the work in to figure out how to resuscitate or keep alive. You know, that's, you know, another thing as well. Okay. I want to go way back. We've talked a lot about your childhood, but I just want to go way back to a point where you first had the vision. I think I want to be in this entertainment business. Mm -hmm. you, you get off the plane in New York City and mm -hmm. what are you thinking when you get off the plane? Are you thinking... I'm going to experience the American dream, or do you have any idea what you're going to do, or do you have a sort of a no, vision? No idea whatsoever, and I'm always very honest about that because I, you know, got here, went to high, you know, got into high school. I went to Park West High School in the, you know, west side of Manhattan, and got up every day, went to school, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, thought I was going to go to college, you know, did that one year in college, realized that mm, this probably isn't conducive to me being able to pay rent because um, it was time for me to move out and get my own place. And um, I did that and started working jobs. I can't ever remember a time where I had one job. It was always kind of multiple jobs, figuring it out. But I always knew that there was this... Um, this sense that I was destined for something, had no idea what it was, but you know, you feel it inside you. I'm supposed to be doing something and it'll reveal itself to me magically one day. Um, I got the job at the placement firm, um, hired Stephanie Gale, who is still with me to this day, because that's another thing that I'm definitely proud of my, the connections that I made early on in my life that still to this day are a big part of, you know, how I function on a day to day. Relationships, um, everybody. Relationships are absolutely everything. Um, but I always say like that, working at Radio City probably was my first interaction with working at the placement firm told me that I wanted to be in business for myself because here I was surrounded by all of these women. It was a, you know, female owned firm. All of her associates or associates were women. And that was kind of a very intentional thing. Um, Roz Goldfarb, her name just came to me in that moment. But uh, so I remember going, wow, this is really amazing. Women doing this, owning business, their own business and, you know, making it happen. And, and watching them juggle family and all that and going like, oh, okay, you can do it all. 
So that to me was very um, instructive. And I, I remember realizing at that moment that I'm going to be in business for myself. No idea what it's going to be, but I'm going to be doing it for myself. And then Radio City was kind of like, oh, well, this is glamorous in this entertainment industry. I wasn't one of those people that was into music, listened to the radio, you know, into fan, uh, a pop culture and, you know, fans of people. None of that stuff. Like, again, it was working trying to figure out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. How do I pay this rent? How do I send money back home to my mother? How do I pay these bills? Um, so you were conscious of sending money back to your mom? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, that rift did not last for long. My mother, you know, my mother and I have this symbiotic relationship. She's the air that I breathe. And the, the, the reason I get up every morning and I firmly believe that her prayers are what keeps me safe and alive every single day that I'm living, but she's maddening and infuriates me and, you know, is, is stubborn and drives me insane, you know? So my, my dynamic and relationship with my mother is one that I can't imagine doing without, but can't take for more than two minutes at a time. It's, you know, it's interesting, but, um, and so you take the gig at Radio City. I imagine there's ads for all different kinds of jobs. I mean, you have a did vision, the, like when you're looking at the post and you're like uh, circling this one, this no, one. No, it was like, oh, they've got flexible flexible hours. I can work at Ross Goldfarb's and do this because they have, you know, night hours and weekend hours. This is great. It, you know, I can. So that was all it was, was flexible hours. Flexible hours, keeping up, you know, my more than one job at a time you know, lifestyle that I had been leading. So tell me the first moment that happens at Radio City. And if you've never been to Radio mm. City Music Hall, it's a magical, magical time. And it was during the holidays. So there's that Christmas spectacular that happens, right? So that is even more magical than anything else that goes on at Radio City. So that was kind of my, there is a whole other world that I don't even, you know, know about, operate within, and here are these people who, you know, I, I operated the elevators for a time, and that's where the celebs would, you know, ride up and down the elevators, and you'd, you'd see the people that were around them, and I'm like, oh, there are people who aren't on stage, but behind the scenes doing stuff for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of the first interaction, but I probably would say dancing was when, because that was something that I literally just stumbled into, had no idea that I could do it or not. That was kind of my real, oh, this entertainment industry might be something that I want to know more about and want to venture into. Because that led to artist development and, you know, my working with um, artists, talent, and that's how I met the Trackmasters. So I would say like dancing was kind of that first domino that got tipped. Got it. And the first client that you worked with as a manager where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again, what happened? Um, it was working, I was working with the A-team and I was working with them doing artist development and that came as a result of the dancing and, you know, the staging and, and, you know, stage presence and stuff. And one thing led to another and before you know it, I was getting more and more involved with their careers and they were produced by these guys out of Brooklyn, the Trackmasters. And so the Trackmasters were the one who approached me and said, listen, we've been watching the way you're moving with the guys. We definitely think you should consider coming on board and working with us. And I'm like, what capacity? You know, you could be our manager. You're friggin' out of your minds. I don't have the first idea of what to do with you guys. I don't know anything about music or the music industry. And that was, you know, my first kind of 
inkling that, okay, maybe there is a career here. Maybe if I can figure this thing out um, and, and teach myself the ropes, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be going. Because um, one of the things that I do constantly is I'm always going, okay, God, what is it? Tell me where it's coming from. I don't know what the next clear lane is, but like reveal it to me. And sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, but it's usually like almost a a path that just appears sometimes out of nowhere. And that Trackmasters moment was that because there was nothing you could have said to me in a million years that would have ever led me to believe that, you know, I'd be managing producers. I didn't listen to the radio. <laughs> Do you know how bizarre that is? Incredible. I think about being a manager, you're always trying to protect your clients. You're always trying to figure out those things. And you start the love and hip hop franchise. You, you know, they want something different. You come to them with an Oh, idea. we fast forwarded. So take me through the management business and, and what was happening. Because in management, let's face it, just like love, there's good and there's bad. And there's and, lots of ugly. And there's <laughs> ugly. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by you is because when I'm around you, I feel, I feel like everything's going to be okay. Just like I feel like in myself, like I try to put off... But sometimes the artist puts you in positions as a manager where you have to be the bad guy or the bad girl. All the time. And it creates this human stain between your relationship and these people. How did you navigate those tough situations when an artist put you, without mentioning any names, can you say a situation that you were put into that you just couldn't believe it, but you had to navigate it to get them in the right place and how it affected you mm -hmm. going forward my with the, with the artist and the relationship. Right. I mean, I could think of so many of them because like you said, it's about, you know, you having, trying to maintain your relationships above and beyond your clients. Cause a lot of times they can come in and completely um, destroy them. But I always opted for honesty right? Just being transparent. And, and the thing that comes to mind is like a lot of times I'd have clients who would commit to things and then just decide for whatever reason they weren't going to, you know, do it. So it wasn't about me making up some cockamamie excuse and lying because I always felt like at that point, not only am I compromising my own integrity, but I'm potentially damaging this relationship that I have that I might need to tap into for another client. But let's say the artist is a huge money-making artist for you and they say, listen, don't tell them the truth. Tell them this. Oh, no. I would always go, don't tell me how to handle it. Let me do my job. You know, when you get on the stage, that's your job. Let me do my job. Don't tell me how to handle the situation. Just trust that it's going to be handled. And I think, you know, that sense of confidence that you mentioned, the feeling like everything's going to be okay, is what was probably my strongest, you know, skill set. And I think it also served me when I was dealing with the clients and stuff. It was, the conversations were tough, but I would go like, listen, I, I'm not going to bullshit you and give you some bullshit excuse about why this is not happening. This is where we are with this right now. And for a lot of times I'd already figured out what I had to do to make it right whether it was refunding that money, coming up with a makeup gig, having somebody else to offer up in their stead. But I was never going to call somebody and insult their intelligence because uh, most of the times my talents, reputations preceded them, 
right? So it was about me maintaining my reputation. And so what people knew when they were dealing with me is, okay, I'm willing to go and, and give it a shot with this client who I otherwise would not be messing with because the reputation is this, because I know if nothing else, Mona's going to keep it straight with me. And if we can pull it off, she's going to make sure it happens. And if we don't pull it off, I'm not going to get screwed completely. There's going to be, you know, some fix that we can work around, something that we can, you know, figure out. I think also I minimize lawsuits. I would say it all the time. Like I've saved you so much money in friggin' lawsuits because of my ability to manage a bad situation. Tell me an artist that. Buster, oh, I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> you know, I, he's the answer to everything when it comes to management. <laughs> no, what was the question? Tell me a situation that an artist wouldn't mind you sharing where you were put in the craziest situation you could ever imagine in your life and you laugh about it now. Tell me a situation where you resigned from working with an artist. Oh, my God. And tell yeah. me a situation where an artist fired you when you thought you did a great job. Ah, You know what's crazy? I don't think I've ever had the last one happen. I would say we've mutually parted ways, but I've never got a, you're fired. You know what I'm saying? It was like, again, that connection, this isn't working out for either of us. Let's call, you know, let's keep it 100. Um, I've had those conversations, but no, wow, knock on wood. But going back to the other two, one of the craziest situations I've ever been in, I remember this so clearly because my neighbors rib me about it to this day because I tied one on so completely and fell asleep on their patio furniture. <laughs> and my husband got up in the morning and was like, where the hell is my wife? And found me sprawled out on my neighbor's deck on their furniture. But um, we were going to Africa. We were doing a show. I had Missy, Fifty, and Busta, I think, taking them all over. And there were like millions of dollars involved with this show. And uh, we had worked out a charter. We were supposed to do a private charter. And the promoter in the 11th hour would not go with the charter company that we had vetted completely and decided that we were going to have to get on his plane, which nobody was comfortable with. But this thing was so airtight, and I think there was like a loophole where we didn't specify that it had to be our charter, so therefore he was in the right with saying, you're going to use my plane that I'm using, and if you don't, you're in breach of contract. And everyone banded together and decided they were not getting on that plane. And they did not, and, the, and we did not end up getting on that plane. This was a major festival. I want to say it was like in Nigeria. It was a massive major festival, and... All of our acts bailed and never, and so millions of dollars lawsuit. So it you was bananas. Poker with the guy, and the guy didn't just say at the last minute, "Okay, I'll pay for the." No, plan. nope. Why would he, he was do that? Like, because he was an a hole, and he was just penny you know, and pound foolish, and decided he was not going to do it. And it was a little bit of a control thing, where he was just like, "You're going to take my plane," not you know. Um, and it was it became a pissing match and we didn't end up doing the show and of course got embroiled in this nasty lawsuit and it was just ugly, ugly, ugly. So that was one of my and that was one of those moments where I was like, holy shit, I can't do this for much longer. The stress level, the anxiety that was like horrific across the board. And because it involved all of my clients and, you know, I'm bearing the brunt of the fact that there was this loophole that put, he had every right. Plus you lost all that money. Plus I lost all that money, which that's what's weird about me. It was 
always more about doing that great business and having a successful, you know, show go off. And the money was great. But if the money fell apart because my clients decided they weren't going to do it or for whatever reason, I was okay with that. I was okay. I, I never chased the checks, right? Because I always felt that was short-sighted. It was always about like, look at this. We got this under our belt, one more notch, and we can, you know, build on this. Um, and then the moment that I said, I'm done, I wonder if he's ever told this story himself, but um, I had already started doing television at this point. I was, I transitioned and left Violator and had started Mona Me, and I was still booking dates for Busta. And Busta would give you the most outrageous tall orders, right? It would be like, yo, Mona, I just saw this house that I want to buy. I'm going to need $350,000 by tomorrow. You know, and it's like, where am I pulling this out of my, you know? And, you know, he was still out there doing shows, but it certainly wasn't at the height of his career where we could command, you know, those kinds of dollars. But I was able to, again, tap into a relationship, made a phone call, got him, you know, um, overseas, south of France. What happened? Cannes. They would have all those parties and stuff. All expenses paid, beautiful, all you have to do, 20 minutes at a walkthrough, 100% up front, which you know, nobody wants to pay 100% up front, especially on an overseas gig, because they have no idea if you're going to get on that friggin' plane, right? The best you can get is 50% up front, 100% up front, so he made his deadline with whatever he was trying to buy at the time, whatever trinket he was trying to buy, so it's over, does this happen like... Oh, for holiday weekend, right? Is it Labor Day? Yeah. That that happens. So it's Labor Day and I am the party house, right? Every holiday, all my family comes over. I've got a house full of people. We're cooking in the backyard, enjoying ourselves. My phone is blowing up like crazy. And there's like the time difference. So I'm like, oh my God, it's like midnight over there. Why the hell is he calling me? Show isn't even, a party isn't even until tomorrow. I pick up the phone and Busta is going bananas, bananas, right? Yo, fuck this. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? And I'm going to tell this story, Busta, because it was so friggin' ridiculous. <laughs> the kitchen is closed and I can't have breakfast. You're calling me in New Jersey because the kitchen in the south of France is closed and you can't have eggs, right? So that was the first phone call. <laughs> call the promoter who got his the chef in the hotel up to make him break. Then I got another call closely followed, going crazy again. They have no rosé cristal. <laughs> you know I only drink rosé cristal. I was like, he's friggin' kidding me, right? <laughs> you know, but like every cuss word you could think, because he's like losing it over the fact that they don't have. And I said, you know what, Buster? I'll get this rosé. And it's so funny, because I remember that day. I was on my, <laughs> and my fingers were just flying, right? And I looked down, and I realized I was writing him a resignation letter. And this is like, I had been managing Buster for like 18 years at that point, 19 years, you know, and I was just like, I I'm done. Oh, my God. And I'm, my fingers are, and I'm like, I'm really done. I'm writing this thing. <laughs> Holy shit. You know what I'm saying? I'm pressing send. And I was like, I spoke to the promoter. He's going to deliver your rosé, but Buster, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I've never told this story. I'm sorry, Buster. I love you. Um, Did he fight to have you back? And not at first, because he's, he's got his pride, you know. But I also think he didn't believe me. I think he thought, ah, she'll get over it, you know. But at the time, my focus had already shifted. And a lot of me staying involved with him had more to do with my love for him and the fact that we were family. We grew up together in this game. You know, I was there 
Well, day one of his solo career. It's one of the things that you just said about a half hour ago about your mom. Mm -hmm. You love her so much, but then she drives you crazy. And there was a lot, but there was also, for me with my clients, there was also a lot of, and it's an enabling, because we're enablers too as managers. Like, who else is going to do this? Who else is going to put up with this crap? Who else is going to, you know, and probably tons of people for the money, right? But for me, it needed to be about more than that, because I was also the person that he relied on to get him through the tough situations, to make things okay with the promoters and the people he was in business with to take care of him. So um, a big part of, I think, what I bring to the table is both a manager and what has served me as a producer is the caretaker in me. You know, I'm a mama. Tell me how you feel the love and hip hop thing came together creatively for you Mm. and your vision of this show. And when did you know that, holy shit, this is going to be a huge hit. I can't believe one of my first, if not my first things Mm, Mm. that I ever created and put together in my life. Mm -mm. You know how rare that is? I've heard. And I've I've been trying to capture that, (laughs) you know, ever since. Um, You know, the the show actually started out as something that Yandy, to her credit, had sold into VH1 to Jim Ackerman. Um, She had Jim Jones as a client when she left Violator. She took on Jim. She was managing him. And when I left Violator to start Mona Me, she came back into the fold, brought Jim as a client. And at that point, I had also started making the rounds and really trying to, you know, develop the television business for Mona Me. And she was like, I have this project with Jim. We've had it at VH1 for some time. I don't know what they're going to do with it. We've been you know, we shot a pilot because they had shot something, um, but it isn't taking off. And she mentioned Jim Ackerman, who I had just, you know, met and connected with. And Jim reached out to me and said, listen, I love this idea of doing a show with this guy, but what we got on tape isn't quite working. Because at the time, Jim had gone through some traumatizing things. One of his guys and his crew had gotten killed. He didn't want to be bothered. So Stefan and, and Toby, who are to this day my partners at Eastern, were, you know, tiptoeing around this crazy rapper and trying to get him to participate in a reality show against his will. And it was almost like the anti-reality show because he was like, get these cameras out of my face. I thought it was kind of cool, but apparently it wasn't what VH1 was looking for. And Jim was like, you know, we've got to broaden this out. So we shot another pilot when I came on board, something that incorporated, you know, Chrissy, Jim's girlfriend more and his mom more. And that was like Jim and the Family Jones. And it was a little bit more of a family show and it was a broader show. Um, But what we found was that, you know, we need to open up the world some and see kind of more of Chrissy. Um, And Jim and I talked, Jim Ackerman and I talked about it a lot. And they were all of these ensemble, these female ensemble shows that were um, gaining popularity, the Housewives of Atlanta and, and those other shows. And I knew a lot about the world, right? Having lived it and a, a lot about the women who navigated the world was spending a lot of time with Chrissy and hearing the challenges that, you know, that she was facing in her relationship and correlating them to all of the women that I knew who had dated all of the rappers that I represented and was like, this is unique to this space. Not a lot of women in different facets of the world, African-American or otherwise, going to put up with a lot of the things that, you know, these men put these women through. And again, like some of these women dating them for years, there's no prospects of marriage. No, you know, he's having kids outside of the relationship. What exactly is your end game? What is your game plan for your life, 
right? What do you want to do? And they all had their own hopes and dreams, but they deferred them and put them on the back burner because it was all about either being arm candy or being his support system, right? And, and so the opportunity to pull the curtain back on this world, showcase these women's lives, and hopefully in the process, give them a platform, right? Like, you're going to live this life regardless of whether or not my cameras are rolling, Here's an opportunity to use it, leverage it, flip it and reverse it, however you need to, but like take back the control, right? And if you decide during the course of this that you want to, you know, walk away from this, more power to you. And if you decide in the course of this that you want to stick with this because this is your life and you're going to live it the way you see fit, more power to you because this is a judgment-free zone. This is just about giving you this platform and giving the world an opportunity to see what your life is like because people are curious, you know, and they want to know. And when did you know that it was a juggernaut? It's interesting because that first season didn't rate very well. You know, I mean, I, it rated okay when I look at what some of the other shows rate, you know, in first season. I'm like, what the hell was I complaining about, you know? But it certainly wasn't the numbers that we got, you know, in second season and beyond. I think after that first season, there was a lot of conversation about whether or not they were even going to bring it back. Jim Ackerman was like the fiercest, you know, advocate in that building and knew that we had something special. And he was like, they're bananas, you know? We're giving people a glimpse into a world that this is why they read the tabloids. This is why, you know... This is what they want to know. Um, I think it's when we started witnessing the conversation that was still happening long after not only the show went off air on that Monday night, but when the season was over, it was still kind of like, oh, do you remember this? And when are they coming back? And, when are, and we were like, wow, we've tapped into something. We've connected in a way that is bigger than just the TV show. They're tapping into the lifestyle which is always, I mean, when you think about management and branding, that's 101, right? Offer up a lifestyle, not a thing, not a person, not a lifestyle, a brand that they can connect to. And that's what we did with Love and Hip Hop. Awesome. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. You tell me what comes to mind. Okay. All right. Ja Rule. What comes to mind immediately is the gruff voice. <laughs> I don't know. I think about, you know, his voice. Is that, am I playing this game right? Yes, you are. Because I always <laughs> say you can name that tune in three notes. You know, they're going to be a star. If you have that voice. Yep. Mariah Carey. Oh God, I sound so redundant saying that voice. Um, no, I think about little lambs running in a field, you know. <laughs> I wasn't there that whole period where everyone was lamb <laughs> with Mariah. So, yes, I think about little Bo Peep. <laughs> Fantasia. I don't know that I think there's emotion when I hear Fantasia, right? I managed Fantasia for a while, and she was one of those roller coaster relationships for me because she was at a point in her life where she was sowing her wild oats and out there having a great time. But she was such an amazing talent that it would be so frustrating when I couldn't pin her down and get her to focus. And it would drive me crazy until I would be backstage in the wings and she would open up that damn mouth and I would get goosebumps. And I would go, okay, that's why I'm doing this. You know, so Fantasia's a feeling for me. Q-tip. Oh, I think about the voice. I think about the righteousness. I, you know, I think Q-tip is the abstract. 
Yeah. The track masters. Oh my God. Those guys are always going to have a special place for me. Uh, especially Alex Richburg, because Alex is the reason I'm here. Alex is the reason that I am doing what I do. He convinced me that I could. Amber Rose. Oh my God. That's my girl. She's badass bitch. That's what I think about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Jocelyn Hernandez. She's my other badass, but I call her my brat. Like Jocelyn has so much, you know, love and so much potential, but it's mired in, like we talked about earlier, you're the product of the life you've led, the circumstances you've had, the, you know, experiences that have shaped who you are. And Jocelyn, I, I just want her to overcome that. I want her to be who she's destined to be. You meet that girl. Her presence is, you know, you know you're in the presence of someone who's meant to be a star. I want her to clear the cobwebs and be that. Missy Elliott. Oh, Missy Elliott is, she's my friend. She's my client. She's one of those people that you think about are not of this planet. I think that's how people thought of Michael Jackson. That's how I think of Missy, because she lives her life in such a cocoon, you know, and it's intentional. And it's because she's a special talent. So when I think about Missy, I think protective, you know. Awesome. Three quick things. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, God. My proudest. Being able to reinvent myself and still be here today to talk about it. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. That my partner, Chris Lighty, took the route that he did, and I am never giving up. Awesome. Last question. You've seen a lot of artists. You've seen a lot of entrepreneurs. Tell our audience what it takes for a young person who's a teenager going through a lot of difficult times mm -hmm. to fight through and become the kind of executive you become mm -hmm. an entrepreneur and tell the artist out there who has a dollar and a dream mm -hmm. what it will take for them to get to the next level. What qualities does it take? I mean, it all sounds cliche, right? Because we've heard it growing up. We've heard it all of our lives. But it's really about understanding it, harnessing it, and applying it. You can't give up. You have to believe that you can do it because nobody's going to have more faith in you than you're going to have in yourself, right? And there are going to be obstacles thrown at you left and right. And if you allow yourself to be knocked over by those, most of the times there's not going to be anybody there to pick you up. So you have to believe in your ability to get up time and time again and keep forging ahead. Educate yourself. Know whatever it is that you're trying to get into. We didn't even get into this, but when I said I never listened to the radio, I had no idea how music was made. And I spent nights at the studio watching these guys work and understanding what every knob did so that I could best represent them. You have to know the business that you're in and apply yourself to that, doing that homework and getting that information under your belt. Um, you know, an educated, you know, consumer or whatever, an educated person is the best. It's, it's rooted in truth. And and when I say education, I don't mean book smarts because Lord knows I never went to college. I'm talking about knowing your business and knowing what it's going to take and having a plan for what it's going to take to get you to where you're trying to go. 
awesome. Mona Scott King, you blew me the fuck Did you away. just call me Mona Scott oh, King? Mona Scott Young. <laughs> and you I actually was away. going to applaud him for saying my full name every single time because nobody friggin' does that. And in the final outro, he's, but you know what? That was perfect because you were so perfect the entire time. That that just humanized you in a way that I appreciate. So, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you were great. No, I definitely enjoyed this. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. For your you. time and your energy and, and your research. It was wonderful. And I just want to remind everybody, please check out her new series, Money, Power, Respect on WeTV, Love and Hip Hop, Atlanta spinoff. Stevie and Jocelyn take LA on VH1. Mona Scott King, amazing. Thank you so much. And he did it again. I did it again. <laughs> Mona Scott Young. No, no keep it that I can't do it. I can't believe this. The publicist Carrie's going to kill me. Thank God there's editing, everybody. <laughs> okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Marion Bradley. All right, congratulations, Marion. You are a winner. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Landing on Christar, 31, June 26, 2016. Title, Can Be Life-Altering, five stars. It reads... Great podcast, unpurchasable insight. Barry is not only highly entertaining, but also more educational than any professor. Thank you so much, Christar31. Congratulations. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry King. And if you like the show, please <laughs> tell all your friends. Barry, have you been proposing to and me? If you uh, don't like the show, uh, propose to me. Thank you so much. I am embarrassed, flustered. I've had the best time of my entire life. Thank you. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.